0: But I guess that's a healthy thing in some ways. Oh, I think I have to hit record. That makes sense. Okay, so the next one is gods, giants, and dragons. Some of my favorite things. I have to be really careful right here this is where things go kerflooey okay so right now it's not connected and I can't take it out because it's um, out of power so we'll just have to wait so let's talk about um, is this plugged in see. I think this one's ready to go to yeah all I have to do is push that button. What we could talk about while this is, um, I'm so afraid to move it, is how this is going to go, um, doesn't look really well. I'm having more issues with that one than I am. Some other things. Thinking of changing over. So just to try it, just to see if I have better luck with this one. Oh that's right, this isn't even set up for that. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to deal with this. I could set this up for that, though. I could do that tonight. Um, I really, really, really don't like doing this. Because, you know, I know it might seem like I like crawling around on the floor all the time. But I really don't. You know what, I could do is just play it like right here with a long chord. Let me do that. Let me change this setup a little bit. But you know what, this isn't even working this way.
1: all through the Bible.
2: The things that are going on in the world right now, I'm sorry, but the riders, they're, they're out.
1: Now, a fresh look at the end times that reveals the prophecy of the giants at Armageddon. Names the four horsemen of the apocalypse already in the world today. These entities are real entities and not just metaphors right. or symbols. And they're
2: all named.
1: Unmasks the ancient dragons who walk the earth Entities such as Kronos or Chaos, Leviathan, Tiamat. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. What is he describing here, if not a dragon? It unveils hidden prophecies of their ultimate destruction. TV. I'm Derek Gilbert. We we'll begin the first of a series of programs based on a brand new book that I am, well, honored to present mainly because of the uh, prestigious co author of the book. First of all, on the panel joining us for these uh, discussions, and we always have a wonderful time when we talk about the Word of God, especially End Times Prophecy, is the CEO of SkyWatch TV and a best selling author in his own right, Dr. Tom Horn. Tom, it's good to be welcome. here. And the co author of uh, this book, which is uh, coming soon from Defender Publishing. My honor to have my name on this cover as well. The book Giants, Gods, and Dragons, and my co-author, Sharon K. Gilbert. Well, hi, sweetie guy. pie. Glad to be here. Well, this, this book really began from an observation that you made about the riders of the apocalypse, which was that when we read in Revelation chapter 6 about those riders, that the fourth rider is named.
2: I've been talking about that for years. Yeah. He's given a name, Thanatos, and Hades rides with him. That's another named Small g, God.
1: Right. And you gave a presentation on this several years ago mm-hmm. at a prophecy conference, and it kind of filed away. And then this year, Tom, in his wisdom, suggested, <laughs> hey, why don't you write a book because of the COVID-19 outbreak on the pale horse rider?
2: Yeah, and I started writing that, and, and I sent Tom a note, and I, and I talked with you. I said, I feel like this book needs to be bigger. <clears throat> it cannot be just on the rider alone because the rider is not alone he's writing with others and and if you take it out of context it doesn't make any more sense so because you and i had written veneration mm-hmm. i knew and i also knew that you're working on another book that we can't reveal yet that uh um, you would benefit from the research yeah by helping me
1: and it, this this tracks with what both of us have been researching you for your series of novels the yeah. red wing saga and me for the previous books last clash of the titans mm-hmm. and bad moon rising That when we apply the divine counsel research of scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, author of Reversing Hermann and other books, we apply that to the writers of Revelation. And uh, we came up with some interesting, I think, interesting conclusions about the identities of the other writers. In short, these writers are real. They are entities that would have been known to John and his readers in the first century. In other words, the gods of the pagan world, fallen angels if you prefer, but still, God in the Bible calls them Mm -hmm. gods. And so we started, okay, what do we know about these writers? Because there's not very much said about them. For all that has been written about them and all the artwork that they have inspired and the movies from Hollywood that they've inspired, they get less than a chapter in Revelation. Yes, but
2: there are clues in the original language.
1: Right, and that's what we started digging into. So once we get past death, you know, Thanatos, and we'll come back to them, I'm sure we started looking at the other writers. So, uh, and, and I think th- these are conclusions I've not seen anywhere else. Now you've studied prophecy a lot longer than I have. Have you seen anyone else actually name the writers of the?
2: I never have. It wasn't until I was doing research for that talk, because I was I was I was connecting it to diseases that were outbreaking at the time, such as Ebola, but. Mm-hmm. Um, when I dug in there and I discovered Thanatos is a proper name. It's one of the, the Greek gods. He and his brother Hypnos are uh, psychopomps. They take you to the afterlife, which means that they can cross over from one world into the other back and forth. Um, the fact that they're riding horses, you've discovered, is uh, an indication that they're doing that mm-hmm. because horses and chariots indicate this crossing from one realm into the other.
1: Right, found that in the references to the, the Rephaim mm-hmm. in the pagan texts. Uh... And, of course, we've got comparisons with the riders of Revelation and the colors of their horses, which are significant, and the colors of the horses and the horses pulling chariots mm-hmm. in the book of Zechariah in the and, Old Testament. And when you start to look at horses themselves
2: in the Old Testament and the New, there's a lot in there. Zechariah, as you say, has references to colored horses, but you also see this idea that there are stationed entities. hmm that do nothing but spy. They are watching humanity, and they're reporting back. Right. We see in the book of Job that, call, right. that sometimes God calls everyone into a big meeting. Mm-hmm. And what's he say? What's going on on earth?
3: Yeah. It doesn't
2: mean he doesn't know.
3: And as I was reading your book, you know, over the last couple of days, as much of it as I could possibly read, I would agree with something you said a a moment ago. You know, have you seen anybody else that has explained the meaning behind these different deities and gods? I would venture to tell the audience, you can't possibly understand a lot of middle eastern history a lot of it if you're reading even you know extra biblical texts about the mythologies of this god or that god mm-hmm. you can't really even understand what is being said in many cases but that is especially true where in the old and new testament it makes direct references to these gods which of course for me makes my antenna go up because it says okay there's something more here than just myths there's something more than just a bunch of people you know thousands of years ago came up with some interesting stories and created some interesting creatures and characters in order to tell this the lore you know the yarn or whatever uh, to teach some kind of morality or whatever it was they were trying to do the, the Bible actually identifies these as real entities. And furthermore, that God himself is going to declare war against them at the end of time. And when Jesus returns, he's actually in a war I know. with these gods that are
1: identified. And how that. does
2: he get here? He comes, he on, comes a horse. on a horse.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. And what's fascinating is when we understand that the Jewish religious scholars of Jesus' day, the scholars, like those who translated the older Hebrew text into the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which which was the translation that the apostles in the early church would have had, understood the connection between what we call Greek mythology Uh and what they had been learning from their Hebrew scriptures since childhood. So these entities that we know as Zeus and and Apollo and Aphrodite are in the Bible, but often concealed by the way our English Bibles are translated.
2: That's so true, and I'm glad you brought up the Septuagint. You and I do a Sunday morning Bible study that is available (laughs) all five years of it, or whatever, six years. But uh, we we like the Septuagint because of the reason you said, that the uh, 3rd century B.C. writers Mm -hmm. were using the Hebrew, translating it into Greek, because the Prince of Greece had taken over the known world. That's right. And so Greek was the lingua franca. Mm -hmm. Everybody read in Greek. So when the First Testament disciples get together... Their reference is Greek. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, and there are sections, there are passages in Scripture that make it clear that the that the uh, Jewish religious scholars, and we talk about this in the book Giants, Gods, and Dragons, and our, our purpose was to show that these, what we would consider fantastical creatures of fantasy lore, the world of J.R.R. Tolkien, is yeah. in the Bible from cover to cover. Right? Oh, it is. And and they, the early it's church understood this. If the apostles understood it. it. The Jews of the Second Temple period understood this. Uh, for example, when David goes out to do battle with the Philistines in the Valley of Rephaim, right. which is just southwest of Jerusalem in Second 2 Samuel, the translators of the Septuagint, took the Hebrew and rendered it into Greek as the Valley of the Titans. Mm-hmm. They understood that the gods of the Greeks, the old gods who had been punished, or by, because in, in the Greek story it's because they lost to Zeus and the Olympians, but these were the gods who were confined in Tartarus. Well, Peter makes mention of a group of angels who had sinned, who were locked up in Tartarus. Jude references them as well, both describing them as uh, in chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. And those, of course, are the angels of Genesis chapter 6, the creators of the Nephilim, the parents of the Nephilim. So we've got a connection there in Scripture which was understood clearly by the Jewish religious scholars of the angels, the sons of God of Genesis 6, and the titans of Greek mythology. And it's
3: actually actually more than just a casual reference. In other words, they're not using Tartarus to describe the underworld, yes. um, because it happened to be a convenient Greek word. As you yes. say, they're, right. they're speaking Koine Greek. most people don't know the disciples. Most of them couldn't us. speak Hebrew, right? They were right. Hebrews of mm-hmm. nationality, but they were speaking in Greek. Right. That's why they were using the Septuagint. But uh, most people don't understand that the connection there is actually to real entities that played a real role, beginning at Mount Hermon, the watchers come down, but that even the life of jesus christ uh for the hebrews what they were looking for in the messiah was somebody who would turn over would would counteract if you will right Mm disannul the curse that was brought on the earth by what the what do you call the tadanu the the yes Yes, the titans yes Uh, i'm going to do this a few times during these programs i want to take some quick excerpts from your book And i have you respond to them because I want people to realize how important this book is, how it will revolutionize your understanding of the Old and New Testament, the life of Christ, but also prophecy, right? So I'm not, I am not—I don't want to re- get too wordy in my reading, but let me see if I can just grab this out of the last chapter. This was one of the places in the book that I'm like, okay, I pastored 25 years. I was an executive in the largest evangelical organization in the world, and I never heard anything like this, All the those years, right? There's another aspect to the name Raphaim, it says in your last chapter, that undergirds the notion of the scenario being way more than death on a green horse, right? This is when my antennae went up, right? Uh, and then you go into talking about your great research and the last clash of the titans, uh, and you're talking about the meaning of the words that leads to the mighty ones, right? The best be understood, the light of the Akkadian, Rabba Um, to be large, great, the derivative, Rabiam, leader, chief, anyway, mm-hmm. thus you say, the R-P-U-M, I don't know how you'd even that's pronounce a, yeah. it. Yeah. The, the Rupium would be the great ones or the mighty ones, and now you say this, mighty ones, question mark, great ones, question mark, sounds familiar, doesn't it? How about men of renown, yes, right, that's yes. a phrase we're more familiar with, boom. Nephilim, Raphaim, Titans, our conclusion, here's where this gets interesting, I want you to talk about it, death, so now we're talking about the writers of the book of Revelation and in the end times and prophecy, which you which you assert have already started their ride, the yeah. spirit of them has already started their ride, death and his entourage are Titans, possibly accompanied by members of the Raphaim, who, as we noted earlier, are the demons who have plagued the world for thousands of years. Maybe all of the horsemen are titans, or perhaps the first three, just the opening acts to a final grouping. I could keep reading, but people's brains are going to explode (laughs) if you care about the Bible, if you care about the rich meaning that is both Old and New Testament. Uh, this is going to revolutionize some people's thinking, and and by the way, this is not guesswork. This is all based on a great deal of scholarly material, much of which has only been made
1: available to us in recent years. Well, yes, um, the Ugaritic texts. Uh, Ugarit was that Amorite kingdom from about the time of the Judges. That's when it was destroyed, which is how those te- why those texts were preserved. Those clay tablets were. <laughs> Buried beneath burning buildings, that they were fired and baked and preserved until now. But some of them have only been translated within the last 40 years or so. So the great theologians of years, centuries past, did not know that these existed. And these revealed to us that the pagans around ancient Israel understood that the Rephaim existed, that they they, they believed that they were the spirits of their dead kings, the mighty men who were of old, Mm -hmm. that they venerated them through these rituals that we outlined in our book, Veneration, and that the Greeks got their concept of the heroes like Heracles and Perseus and Theseus directly from these Rephaim that are mentioned in our bible in the Amen, bible yes. so what
3: you're seeing among the uh, among the pagan cultures are distortions of an actual event, it's an actual story. It's
2: fake news.
3: Story, it is right? fake news. <laughs> the original <laughs> fake news. The CNN
1: of, of the antiquity, right? <laughs> well, We need to take a break, but I want to tell you how you can get a special offer that includes the book Giants, Gods, and Dragons and a collection of more than 27 hours of video teachings that Sharon and I have assembled over the last few years that incorporates all of this research. We'll tell you about that, and when we come back, we'll continue explaining why Death may be, and his entourage may be, titans, and the relationship between Hades and death. It's not what you think. That's next on SkyWatch TV. The Bible is more fantastic than we were ever taught. In our new book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, Sharon and I showed that the giants of Genesis, the gods of Egypt, Canaan, and Babylon, and the dragons described by Job, Isaiah, and John were not only real, they're all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, This is a fresh look at End Times Prophecy that names the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and reveals hidden prophecies of the ultimate destruction of the Nephilim, the death of the gods, and the very last enemy destroyed when God creates the new heaven and new earth. Please take advantage of this special Giants, Gods and Dragons offer from Skywatch TV because we've assembled more than 27 hours of teachings on DVD to go along with our new book, including Wars of the Gods, Volume 1, Search for the Titans, As you follow us from the Holy Land to the giant's tombs on the mysterious island of Sardinia. Wars of the Gods, Volume 2, Search for the Rephaim. A two-DVD set featuring the first look at the Serpent Mound of Bashan. A tour inside the central core of the megalithic monument to the dead, Gilgal Rephaim. And four hours of bonus teachings from me, Pastor Carl Gallups, and Messianic Rabbi Zev Porat. Plus, This is War, Six hours of never-before-released teachings recorded live in California last fall. Unmasking the ancient gods. Six presentations by Sharon and me at the 2017 Blessed Hope Prophecy Conference. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Ten programs from our weekly series, Unraveling Revelation, on the Riders of Revelation 6. And the battle against giants, gods, and dragons. Four hours of teachings on spiritual warfare and the prophesied destruction of the supernatural enemies of God. All of this, the new book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, plus seven DVDs with 27 hours of video on the supernatural war in which you and your family are deployed, is yours for a gift of just $35 plus shipping. Don't miss this offer. Call the Skywatch TV Store at 844-750-4985. That's 844-750-4985. Or log on to SkywatchTVStore.com. Welcome back to Skywatch TV. I'm Derek Gilbert. The writers of the apocalypse loose on the world today. We're discussing the brand new book by my best friend and me, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, with Skywatch TV CEO Dr. Tom Horn. Uh, the, yes, the, the writers of the apocalypse and this idea that they are literal entities, not just concepts or representations of conquest and war and famine, but actual entities responsible for these things. Um, we, we make the case in, in the book that These riders have been out and loose since the first century. This is not a future event. They're out there now. Yeah. Um, So do you want to break down it?
2: Well, you and I have discussed this a lot on Unraveling Revelation and also in our podcast, Gilbert House Fellowship. My position, and I think you agree on this, is that when we see Christ arrive in the book of Revelation, Mm -hmm. he is like a lamb who has been slain. Before he appears, John sees that the Lord God Almighty has a scroll in his hand, and everybody's weeping, including John, because no one on earth, in heaven, or in the earth, under
1: the earth, under yes, the earth, yes,
2: is worthy of opening it. Yeah. So the question is, where is Jesus?
1: I think 1 Peter 3.19 answers that question. That's when he's proclaiming to the spirits in prison. And I've heard that taught on that that those were the spirits of the dead. But it's clear from the context because he connects it to the flood of Noah that he's dealing with these angels who sinned Mm -hmm. in Genesis chapter 6. I love the way Dr. Michael Heiser presents it. And I'm going to paraphrase him, but he basically says, Jesus went down there to say, hey, surprise, bet you didn't get, expect to see me exactly. here. Exactly, I so love it. He's not in Hades with humans, where the human spirits would be. Right. Uh, it's it's clear he's in Tartarus. He's in tartarus. And uh, he is basically saying on the dead, dawn of the third tartarus. day, I'm getting out, tartarus. but you're still
3: dead. Exactly. Now, what do you think the is tartarus. meant when it says that Jesus yeah, rose he really and he has the, the keys the to death, hell, And the grave. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would say, well, isn't that all three different names of the same thing?
2: But by having keys, there is an implication that there is a door to unlock, which implies a prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They are in prison
1: which is always how Tartarus is described in the pagan texts, and when you read carefully in the Old Testament, you even see shale is described in, in, in some passages in that uh, respect, you know, being surrounded by bars. But uh, exactly. it was clearly the understanding of the, the, the pagan mind, and that's why Peter, in Second Peter 2, verse 4, where he talks about the angels who he sinned, were thrust down to, just these key verses, thrust down to, and our English mm. Bible says hell, but the Greek word is Tartaros which is significant because that was not the same as Hades. There were different places. Tartarus was for uh, supernatural rebels who needed to be confined, not the human dead. Um,
3: And Jesus Jesus says that as uh, Jonas... Went down into the belly of the earth, mm-hmm. right? I will be. He's going to be down there for uh, three days. Uh, and what does Jonah say when you read the book of, uh, of Jonah? Uh, he says he went down into the belly of the earth to a place in the Hebrew there is called Barabach, mm-hmm. which means a city of gates, gated cities, bars and steel. Yes. And we know where he went because
1: he said that God delivered him out of the belly of hell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, but three
2: he, days is important.
1: Yeah, it is, because we see that repeated a number of times in in Mm -hmm. scriptures. We Mm -hmm. see it also in the pagan Rephaim texts. We also see it in the Descent of Inanna, which is the story of how the ancient goddess of sex and violence went down to the underworld but came back out on the third day.
2: Went down because she wanted to become the queen of the underworld underworld, as well as the queen of heaven. The point is, all of this boils down to it's a war Mm -hmm. between the fallen and the divine realm over whose children are resurrected.
1: Exactly. And that's, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 an amazing chapter in scripture, but that's what really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the writers again begin when we see the seals open and we see that beginning in, in Revelation and chapter that's 5. And when
2: Christ arrives. Right. And he is given that scroll, and he right. immediately starts to open it. Yes, I believe that started in
1: the first century. Well, we, and we, there's uh, there's support for that in the other New Testament uh, epistles because he's described Jesus is described as being at the right hand of the Father at the time of the writing of those letters in the mm-hmm. first century. So suggesting that the the, the ride uh, the writers are still waiting to go out really doesn't fit with what we piece together from the letters of the the apostles and what we see in Revelation I, I chapter 5. I think part five. of
2: the problem is that it's been traditionally taught that they have not yet started writing, that their ride begins on day one of the final seven right, years right. of Daniel's 70 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's called the Tribulation Week, if you're not familiar with it. But I believe, as you mm-hmm. do too, that he start, that they started in the first century because, first of all, because Christ arrives and he starts unsealing it, so it just makes sense logically and in the original language. It seems to imply it. But if you look at history, there have been those same mm-hmm. events. There have been worldwide conquerors. There has been war. There has been economic distress. There has been death by pestilence, plague, famine.
0: I Wars. mean, you can
2: name every one of those writers, and it's been like Horizon. a wave over, over and over and over again. Um, in, for example, Madison. in the, the, the plague itself, that killed about a quarter of Europe, the bubonic the plague, death, right? yes, that's a lot.
1: And we see in uh, in the case of war that uh, the 19th to 20th centuries were the bloodiest in, in all of human history. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for us to say that well, these events are flu. still... flu. Hey, right. That's pretty recent. Yeah. yeah. So, for, for us to say that, that they have not yet begun to ride, uh, also, besides skipping over some of the clues that are in scripture also misses oh just what's happened over the mm-hmm. last 2,000 years of history. But, but I wanted to get to one point because oh, I know so we want to talk about the other riders in the yeah. weeks that are ahead. You um, came across something um, and really analyzed the, the rider on the pale horse and the relationship between death and Hades that I had never heard before. I had put this in the book. A,
2: I had always assumed that Hades was the more powerful entity because Thanatos is a psychopomp mm-hmm. in the Greek He was an entity that, along with his twin brother, Hypnos, they brought you either to eternal rest, going to God, this idea of being asleep, that's Mm -hmm. what Hypnos did, but Thanatos took you to hell, took you to Hades, therefore it was understandable that when he came out, that Hades would follow as if he were the more powerful entity, but the word translated in our English Bibles as following, Hades is following is Akolotheo, it implies that he's a disciple. Hmm. He's following like he's part of the entourage. He's a
1: fanboy. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because Greek mythology always depicts the three most powerful gods as Zeus, the storm god, who's the king, Poseidon, the sea god, and Hades, the god of the underworld.
2: But there's a reason, I believe, why he's a fanboy. Because the ultimate enemy is what?
1: Death. 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 Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right.
2: Death is the most powerful entity that God is fighting.
3: And yeah. and, and this, uh, I know we're going to run out of time, but this brings up an interesting question. Uh, if death is an entity, then what might be implied by uh, death being the final foe against which we will become victors, Mm -hmm. right? Well, actually,
1: there's one after that, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. Well, Uh, there's another
2: one coming. In fact, there's an entire book that's dedicated to that one.
1: But... One of the interesting aspects of this is that uh, in the Canaanite pantheon, in the Amorite mind, the death god was called Mot, and he was described as having this voracious appetite. In fact, he even swallowed Baal, the king of their gods, uh, the equivalent of Zeus at one point.
2: So what do we read in the Old Testament?
1: We read in the Old Testament, and he, just, he described it really hideous as having a lower lip dragging the ground, the tongue that reaches the stars, swallowing Ooh. up everything. But in the Old Testament, and it's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15... Mm-hmm. Sure. When the last Trump, when we are all raised up incorruptible, then will come to pass that which is written. Death disgusting. is swallowed up in victory. That's a quotation from Isaiah 25.
2: Death with a voracious appetite yes. that would eat everything is itself. God. Can you
3: believe that this was God's way of making a mockery of the pagan Absolutely. belief? Absolutely.
1: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is not coincidental. He's sort of
2: like Trump. He takes what
1: he <laughs> says and he turns it on himself. But that's why Paul wrote in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? Exactly.
2: So death has been defeated. Yes. He's just not admitted it
1: yet. Yes. Judgment has been this decreed. We see right. that in the courtroom yeah. scene that's described in Psalm 82. The death of the gods has been decreed. Judgment is yet to be carried out. That is forthcoming. That is uh, the approach we take in the brand new book, Giants, gods and dragons and in the weeks ahead we will talk more about the riders of the apocalypse and the dragons because they've got like seven heads which is even more than smog if you're familiar with lord of the rings (laughs) co-author sharon k gilbert dr tom horn and we thank you for watching don't miss next week we have a lot of fun with this and we pray you find this educational edifying and encouraging at the same time i'm Derek gilbert and this is skywatch tv Okay. Thank you for watching. Keep up with all of Skywatch TV's programs, including our web exclusives by subscribe.
0: Okay, I really liked that one a lot. how do I just subscribe? Let's see. Skywatch TV, there we go. Um, yeah, I, I really like that a lot because they took the time I don't want anything, so I'm tired of grubbing around on the floor after things, but I thought that that was really excellent, and let me tell you something about Tataria. Okay, so this was, um, I forget the exact year, I believe it was, um, let It was A.D. before Christ, I believe, and, um, also, um, it covered Russia and I think it even went down into Germany so what I'm going to do if you don't mind just so that now that you've heard it that it was in the Bible that's where they banished all the um, you know Nephilim and the big giants and everything like that I didn't know that until just today just today that's why i listen to all kinds of stuff so i can piece together exactly what's going on now this this one's giving me some problem but i'm going to try anyway Um, and i did have one that was really good so it might be here Uh, again here it is tataria I want you
4: to listen to this. Please listen to this.
0: Oh, this is
4: part two. Oh well, hopefully it'll have
5: it. Attila the Hun was the leader of a tribal empire consisting of Huns, Ostrogoths, and Alans, among others in Central and Eastern Europe. During his reign, he was one of the most feared enemies of the Western and Eastern Roman empires, crossing the Danube twice and plundering the Balkans, but was unable to take Constantinople. He also attempted to conquer Roman Gaul, which is modern France, crossing the Rhine in 451, and subsequently invading Italy, devastating the northern provinces but was unable to take Rome itself. He planned for further campaigns against the Romans, but died in 453. Attila was at a feast celebrating his latest marriage to an Eastern Germanic or Gothic bride who may have poisoned him as he suffered a severe nosebleed and choked to death. Mm. An alternative theory suggests that he succumbed to internal bleeding after heavy drinking. In any event, After Attila's death, his close advisor, Arderic, king of the Gepids, a Germanic tribe closely related to the Goths, led a Germanic revolt against the Hunnic Empire, after which the Hunnic Empire quickly
4: collapsed.
5: Silla himself is said to have claimed the titles of Descendant of the Great Nimrod, and King of the Huns, the Goths, the Danes, and the Medes. A kaganate is a political entity ruled by a khan or kahan, a title of imperial rank equal to the status of emperor. It may also be translated as Khan of Khans, equivalent to King of Kings. By the end of the 12th century, the royal court of Hungary proclaimed their descent from Attila. That said, in World War I, allied
6: propaganda referred to Germans as the Huns. Nomads invented the stirrup and were the first to put on pants and sit in the saddle. The European fashion of wearing trousers came from the Huns. Nomadic weapons included the saber and bow and arrows. A saber is lighter than a knight's sword. With one swing of its blade, a nomad standing in the stirrup could easily cut down his enemy. A nomad's wife could assemble a yurt in two hours and tear it down in 30 minutes. In the winter, a yurt was warm, and in the summer, it kept cool. Large yurts were put on carts and hauled by buffalo. From a distance, they looked like a city moving along the steppe. The dome of the Khan's yurt was covered with gold. The Khan's headquarters was known as the Golden Horde. In Europe, they became known as the Huns. In the 4th century, the Huns, united under Attila, invading Europe and conquering territory from present-day Chelyabinsk to Munich, simultaneously prompting the great migration of nations. Attila's luck ran out fighting the Goths in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Many of his people then settled in Crimea. One can still find traces of the Huns in the genes of Bavarian barons. Attila was preparing to settle in the territory of present-day Hungary and rule his empire from there, but his young wife poisoned him. After Attila's death, the alliance of the Huns disintegrated. In the 6th century, the Turks grew in strength, having learned how to forge incredibly strong sabers thanks to their unique method of melting ore at a temperature of 1400 degrees. The Turks created the Turkic Khaganate. Over the course of a century, they conquered the lands along the Silk Road, bringing all international trade under their control. The Turkic language and culture spread alongside gold, silver, furs, spices, and silks traveling on camel caravans. Beginning in 522, the Turks began using runic writing. They read in columns, like on this epitaph, carved in stone in honor of the Prince Kul Tigin of the second Turkic Khaganate. The Turkic Khaganate began diplomatic relations with the Chinese who wrote the first accounts of the Tartars. In the 6th century, the Turkic Khaganate weakened and split into western and eastern Khaganates. In the east, the Kimak and Kipchak tribes founded the Kimak Khanate. In the west, Bulgar tribes established Great Bulgaria led by Kubrat Khan in the Black Sea region. Great Bulgaria lasted only 50 years. Asparuh. Cupid's third son went to the lower Danube and there formed the Danube Bulgaria with its capital in Plisga. This is modern-day Bulgaria, whose capital is in Sofia. Qutrog, Cupid's second son, went north. There, where the Volga and the Kamar rivers met, he founded the Volga Bulgaria state with its capital in the city of Bolgar. In 922, at the invitation of Iltibar Omush, an emissary from Baghdad arrived in Volga Bulgaria marking the region's official adoption of Islam. The secretary of the ambassador, Ibn Fadlan, wrote a very detailed account of his journey. By the way, Rus, which would later become Russia, adopted Christianity only 66 years later.
4: Детельница, а я точка, говорят, зарительница. Вот тебе бинь, вот терёт, вот те сорок перейдет Ты сиди, попрядывай, на меня поглядывай. А чего же она заболела? А чего же она заболела? Мама Мамочка моя благодетельница, а я дочка твоя разорительница. Вот и гребень потерял, вот и сорок передел. Ты сиди попрядывай на меня поглядывай. И из-под моря в земли заходила, из-под моря в земли заходила. Мамочка моя благодетельница, а я дочка твоя разорительница. Вот и гребень потерял, вот и сорок передел. Ты сиди попрядывай на меня поглядывай.
6: The Russian princes appointed by the Great Khan either paid taxes or served in the army. In return, they benefited from secured borders, safe roads from Crimea to China, and a stable financial system. In this way, the Golden Horde, later nicknamed by the Russians the Tartar Yoke, lasted until the 15th century. After a time of troubles, the plague, and the invasion of Tamerlane, the empire began to weaken. Cities such as the capital of Saray began to die out. Its function passed to the city of crime, now Crime, which claimed the legacy of the Golden Horde. At the same time, Moscow entered the political arena as a formidable contender. A fragile union between crime, Moscow, and Kazan exited throughout Eurasia until the fall of Kazan and Ostrakhan. In 1552, Ivan the Terrible sacked Kazan. The year before, he built a military base in nearby Shvayevsk. Everybody in the region took sides, either with Moscow or Kazan. Ivan the Terrible attacked Kazan with the cavalry of the Kazim Kanat's leader, Shal Ali. Ivan the Terrible had an army of 150,000 people and 150 cannons. In Kazan, he was opposed by 33,000 soldiers. Using gunpowder, Ivan blew up the city wall and stormed in. St. Basil's Cathedral, standing in Moscow's Red Square, commenced. This event. When Kazan fell, the Tartars lost their statehood. The Ostrakhan Khanate subsequently fell, followed by the Siberian Khanat and later the Crimean, after which the Tartar factor faded from the world arena. The myth of Queen Siyumbiki is connected with the capture of Kazan. She allegedly refused to marry the Tsar and leapt to her death from the tower that now bears her name. In fact, the tower was built in the early 18th century and Siyumbiki was married in 1551 before the capture of Kazan. She lived out her years with with her husband Shah Ali. The Tsardom of Kazan came into existence, covered personally by Ivan the Terrible. He created the Kazan Diocese, which forcibly baptized some Tartars. Tartar soldiers established new lives for themselves and for their warriors from the cities of Kashira, Kolona, and Serbikov. In 1708, the Tsardom of Kazan was transformed into Kazan province under the authority of Count Peter Apraksin, a close friend of Peter the Great. From 1733 to 1774, the province was caught up in a peasant war. Tartars flocked to the aid of the Cossack Emelian Pukachev, who even tried to capture Kazan. In the 18th century, the era of capitalism, Tartar elite became successful businessmen and industrialists, making leather, soap, textiles and paper sold throughout Russia, China and Central Asia. The most successful brands included Arsk Fabric, which accounted for about 50% of the Russian market. The Apanyov, Yuzhinov, Azimov, Barnaev, Guzmanov families got richer, but they also took care of their people building mosques, schools, and places for public leisure that remain today. By the end of the 19th century, an ideological split emerged among the leaders of the nation. Some Tartars, known as academists, wanted to hold on to patriarchal traditions. Their opponents, known as jadidists, favored Europe and Turkey, secular education, and Western fashion. <speaking in Hebrew>
4: My
5: name is Robert Sepper. I'm an anthropologist. Please leave me a comment if you'd like to make a request for me to cover in a future video. Thank you for sharing. Please make sure to subscribe, and I will see you again soon.
4: While well, we continue our okay, analysis...
5: Okay. Of- that's, that's another one. Um, so I
0: told you um, that was actually a, a huge expanse of land right above Asia and the lady who was talking about the Bible was yeah. talking about the giants being put in Tartaria so this man who um, does beautiful photographs photography and also does research I'm going to send him a note that he should watch that one that that's where they put the uh giants okay thanks for listening I know it's confusing bye So